Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13 this morning. While you're turning there, I wanted to share with you that the elders recently this week blessed off on my sabbatical plan. I've been talking about this, my upcoming sabbatical, for a little while now, just kind of getting it out there so that no one thinks that it's a surprise. You know, one of the big, one of the big obstacles to sabbatical or one of the, the, one of the big uh, mistakes of, of sabbatical planning is, is letting this uh, come on people uh, uh, surprisingly or, or last minute, and people think, well, what happened or, or, or what's going on? And so I wanted to uh, get this out as far in advance as possible. On June 16th, my wife and I, on our anniversary, our 23rd anniversary, uh, will begin our uh, sabbatical, uh, and, and it'll go basically through the summer. One of the things that, that encouraged me when I was looking at, at Wildwood and considering coming here as a lead pastor was that the, the church already had a policy on sabbaticals. It, commu- it communicated, uh, it conveyed that the church cares for longevity of pastors, you know, Sabbaticals have one main purpose. Uh, there's a lot of objectives, which I will share with you over the next several months. But there, there's one main purpose, and the purpose is longevity in ministry. Last week, we celebrated Pastor Andrew's 10th anniversary here at Wildwood Church, and we celebrated that. We love that. It, it's right for us to celebrate that. Um, and, and one of the things that helps pastors stay long-term at one church is some prolonged time uh, to be with the Lord, to be refreshed, to be renewed, to be revitalized. As I've studied through uh, sabbaticals and, and done my own research, it, it, it reminded me that it's been about 12 years since I sat in your seat under the steady preaching and pastoral care of another person. And so it, it is time for me to go and just be cared for by Jesus, uh, to go and, re- and remember that I am in identity, not pastor, but beloved child of God. And, and so I expect great things. Uh, the Lord is already bringing to my mind sin issues that uh, are going to be dealt with on my sabbatical, uh, some identity issues. Um, and so I, I look forward to this. You know, whenever I go away for these one-week trips, I usually go in February back to Texas uh, to do some uh, solo camping. When I do, I normally come back changed. I come back uh, refocused, I come back with, 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 with uh, a conviction, and I come back repentant, and uh, I believe that the same thing will happen uh, when I go on this prolonged uh, trip. Now, don't worry, we've got the pulpit covered, it's, it, it's going to be great, you're going to hear from each of the elders uh, over this uh, in a series called If I Could Tell You One Thing, and so we're giving the elders an opportunity to to say to you the one thing that they, that they believe that the Lord would have them say to you. Uh, of course, it's going to be more than one thing. It'll be about 48 minutes worth of that one thing. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. I, I ask you to pray because there's, there's a, a great deal of mixed emotion about a sabbatical. Uh, one, there's some fear. Like, what will happen when I leave for this, for this extended period of time? Um, I'm going to get to go and be with my wife and kids for the summer. That's a great joy. Uh, but what is the Lord going to bring out whenever I'm alone for two weeks? Um, and, and I'm just praying and, and reading and thinking, 
and hearing from the Lord. There, there's a, a good deal of, of conflicted emotions. So I would ask you to pray. And one thing that I will communicate every time I talk about my sabbatical, if you love me, you will still show up when I'm gone. And here's why. If I return from the sabbatical and the assessment of the church is that attendance went down and giving went way down, then the next time that it's time for a sabbatical, that is going to weigh on me and the rest of the elders, and we're going to say, is, is, it, is it okay to do this anymore? And so the, the very best thing that you can do to serve Wildwood and specifically to serve me, if you love me as your pastor, is to just do the normal church membership thing. Just be here, just give, serve, just do normal church, and uh, that will be a huge blessing to me and to all the pastors because uh, Pastor Andrew's going to be on a sabbatical next year, and Lord willing, Pastor Andy, Pastor Matt, Josh, all, all the way down, and, uh, and so... Um, Appreciate your prayers. Amen? Amen. And thanks for the opportunity. So I look forward to do that. I'll, I'll give you some more details at the uh, March business meeting where I'll lay out kind of a general outline of, of what I plan to do and, um, and what the objectives are that the Lord has, has shown me for my sabbatical. All right, let's look here at Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to come into your presence and to sing of your glory. And to thank you for what you have done for us in Christ that all-sufficient merit, now mine, because of Christ. And Father, I thank you that, that the task for us is not to climb up to heaven, to plumb the depths of the sea, but rather to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and to believe in our heart that you raise him from the dead. Lord, how simple have you made it. I pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to hear. And Lord, help us. Help us to believe and confess. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 5, Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. All right, that's Leviticus 18.5. Paul is quoting Leviticus 18.5 to explain what he said in verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He goes back to the source of the law, the human, I should say, the human source, the human author of the law, Moses. And there's a simple premise 
with the law. Law requires obedience. Now, someone might say, well, what's the problem with that? What is wrong with obeying the law? That's what the Jews were doing. They were law-abiding citizens, or at least so they thought. But here's the problem with the idea that someone can obey the law unto salvation. Ain't nobody ever done it. No mere human being has ever obeyed the law the way the law must be obeyed. To be justified by the law, or as Paul says, righteousness that is based on the law, right standing with God based on the law, requires perfect obedience. To live by the law, one must obey all of the law. Now, to understand this concept, we have to dismiss our concept of relativism. You and I have been so accustomed to relativizing the law that it's hard to truly appreciate what is really required to achieve perfection or righteousness by observing the law. For instance, I suspect that every one of you here in this room or watching online has in some way violated the law of our land. Every one of you, I would, I would suspect, if you can drive, you have sped. Even if you keep it to just five, under, uh, five over. Right? I, I don't speed. I just keep it at five over the speed limit. Am I right? How about this? Do you know that it's against the law in most cities to jaywalk? Did you know that you're, you're violating the law when you cross the street not at an intersection, or when you don't wait for the light to change and you walk anyway, no one's coming, but you walk anyway, you're jaywalking, you're violating the law. Or how about this one, you rip the tags off of your mattresses. (laughs) All right, that's a joke, but I think you get my point. Right, most of us either have or could have, there's, there's real justification for receiving a citation from police from someone, right? Either we haven't been caught or we have been caught, we actually got a citation. My military ID has got me out of a number of citations. (laughs) My concealed carry license, my military ID, and then my license on underneath. That guy's got to go through all three of these virtues or two virtues to get to my license, right? One guy actually did that and gave me a ticket still. Come on, man. I was driving on my way to duty, Wisconsin. Ah. But look, at least I didn't rob a liquor store. Am I right? That's kind of a rationale. And granted, yes, robbing a liquor store ought to be treated differently than speeding through a small town. And it ought to have different consequences. However, when it comes to being justified before God, made right in God's eyes, close doesn't cut it. The standard is perfection. I want you to consider the rich young ruler who told Jesus that he had kept the law perfectly his whole life. All of these I've observed, Jesus 
He asks him, what must I do to get into heaven? Jesus tells him a few commandments. All of these I've observed. I've done all of these things my whole life. And then Jesus goes right to his heart. Jesus, you know, when he was dealing with sinful people, and it was, everyone was sinful, but when he was dealing specifically, when the stories are recorded of him dealing with particularly sinful people, he goes right to the heart. He doesn't hem and haw. He's not harsh, but he goes right to the heart. And he knew the man's heart. And so he goes right to the heart, and he, he said, Tell, sell everything that you have and give to the poor. Because he knew that the man's heart was not devoted to God. He didn't love God. He was trying to earn his way into heaven. He thought he could earn his way into heaven. And so Jesus goes to the heart issue. Sell everything you have and give to the poor. If he had done that, would he have gotten to heaven? No, because his heart still was not for God and because he wasn't perfect in everything else. And Jesus knew that. He's proving a point. And he watched the man walk away. So this man who said, I've observed all of the law, Jesus said, but this one thing, you, you still lack. And he watches the man walk away, and Jesus doesn't chase him, doesn't even go after him. He knows his heart. Now to those who think that they can achieve their own righteousness, and this was the Jews of Paul's day, Paul was a Jew, and this was his thought before Christ, to those who think they can achieve their own righteousness because they obey the law, James issues this warning. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. About this time, two years ago, I was preaching through James and I had a pane of glass on a tripod here on the stage. And on the pane of glass, I had five circles painted, one in each corner, one in the middle. And I said that each of these painted circles was, was sort of like representing a major sin. You know, murder, adultery, stealing, lust, whatever it is, coveting. And, 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 and I had a hammer in my hand and I said, well, you know, this, you know, this one up here in this upper corner, the, the murder, you know, I, I don't murder, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna break, break it there. And the stealing, I, I don't steal and... and the, the coveting and, and the lusting. And, and, but this one thing here, I'm going to, I, I'm going to overlook this one and I'm going to break that one. And so, of course, I, I went and, and broke the, that one spot. But what happened? The whole pain shattered into a thousand pieces. And that's, that's James's point. If you break any part of the law, you break all of it. You're guilty of breaking all of it. And that is the point of the law. See, while the law points us into the direction of perfection, of righteousness, it sets the standard for us. It does not supply us with the power to achieve it. The law gives no power to achieve it. It just says this is the standard. And so praise the Lord for Romans 10, 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, for perfection, for right standing. Jesus is the end of the law for being made right with God. The law points us to Jesus, which Paul has already said that in Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness 
of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness based on the law is unattainable. But there is another way. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. If you and I still lived under the law, the standard would still be perfection. And no one has ever achieved perfection. But verse 6 and 7 tells us there's another way. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? That's Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. Now, this can be somewhat of a confusing verse. And, and, and a gentleman came in this week and said, I may be missing the forest for the trees in trying to understand this. Paul is saying here that it's not about climbing up to heaven. It's not about plumbing the depths of the ocean to find salvation. It's, it's not about going through all sorts of trouble to get close to God. That was the Jewish mentality, and frankly, that's the mentality of, of all world religions. Elevate yourself. Put yourself up closer to God. And Paul said last week that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. So they thought that they could bring God down a little bit. They could elevate themselves a little bit, and they could meet God in the middle. But it's not about elevating yourself, and it's certainly not about bringing God down. The point is this, righteousness is not about what you have done. Righteousness with God is not about what you have done or what you can do or what you will do, but rather about what Jesus has done for you. Right standing with God is based wholly upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's not about what you do. It's not about you climbing the highest heaven, uh, climbing the highest mountain, getting as close as you can to God. It's not about you going low into the depths of the earth. You don't need to climb up to heaven and bring Christ down. The Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's already done that. You don't have to journey to the center of the earth to bring Christ up because the Bible says he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead it's already done the work is complete Christ has already done everything necessary for your salvation Jesus said it is finished and so all one has to do to benefit from Christ's finished work on the cross is believe Believe the gospel. Verse 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Here he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 14. That word of faith that we proclaim, that's the gospel. That's the gospel message. It's the key to your righteousness. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul said in Romans 1, 16. Why do I preach and teach the gospel every time I have opportunity? 
because it's the key to our salvation. It is our salvation. And because we are prone to forget it. That is what is common to man. We are prone to forget that our right standing with, with the Lord is based not on our work, but rather on the work of Jesus Christ. And I'll proclaim it and I'll proclaim it until the day I die because you'll forget it, right? And I'll forget it. And I proclaim it to myself every day. And I think you should proclaim it to yourself every day. We tend to get lost and, and we tend to, I mean, think about that, think about that illustration, climbing up to heaven, going deep, deep, deep into the center of the earth or into the abyss. That represents so much religious effort. There's so many people that think that they, I mean, the whole, the whole journey to Mecca, Right, the journey into Jerusalem from all over the, all over the world in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. They, they, they thought, well, if I can go somewhere, Martin Luther went to St. Peter's Basilica and walked on his knees up the steps thinking that it is about me demonstrating my piety, my resolve to, to make myself acceptable to God. One more task, one more step, one more performance, and surely God will accept me at that point. But that's not the way it works. That's not the gospel. Now look, there's a major difference between obeying Jesus because we love him, knowing that, that we love him because he first loved us, and obeying Jesus in order to cause him to love us, right? There's a big difference between loving, uh, obeying because you love him and obeying to coerce his love. We might do the very same things, but with altogether different motives. I think that sometimes we forget that our faith journey is not about climbing up to heaven and somehow earning God's favor. It's receiving and resting in Jesus who is right there in front of our faces. It's in our mouth. It's in our heart. The gospel is simple. Salvation is simple, but we don't want it to be simple. It robs us of, of, our, of our room to boast. See, I can be proud about how much I've, I've ascended in the ranks and the levels and the piety. I can boast in that, but I can't boast in grace. And that's why Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not a result of works. Why? So that any, lest any man should boast. Right. It is simple. It's right in front of our face. 
Verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can it get more simpler than that? Consider the lengths that people have gone to to find peace with God, and yet peace always evades them. Because it was never about an expedition. It was always about a confession that flows from a heart conviction. It was never about an expedition, but about a confession that flows from a heart conviction. I want you to see that there's two components here. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Two components to our salvation. I believe that you must bring yourself to say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You must proclaim the lordship of Jesus over your life personally. It's one thing to concede something in your mind and it's another thing to acknowledge it with your lips. It's just like a resolution. It's just like a goal. You can have a goal, but the moment that you write that goal down and share it with someone else, now there's teeth to that. Now there's weight to that. Now there's accountability to that. There's, there's a weight to acknowledging something. And, and so it's not just that you concede in your mind, Jesus is Lord, maybe generally, No, you must acknowledge Jesus is Lord personally. Out of your mouth, the words will come, Jesus is Lord. There's weight to that. There's meaning to that. C.E.B. Cranfield said this, the confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and the nature the holiness, the authority, power, majesty, and eternity of the one and only true God. There is expressed, in addition, the sense of his ownership of those who acknowledge him and of their consciousness of being his property. All packed into that short, simple statement. Jesus is Lord. Simple, but not easy, right? Simple to say the words, but what does it mean? Those who have come to a saving faith acknowledge that they have placed themselves completely under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want you to remember the the first sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was a sin of rebellion against God, rebellion against the authority of God expressed by the word of God. So the, the most basic sin of man is rebellion against authority. And so it makes absolute sense to me that the most basic confession of a Christian, one who's been born again, made right with God, is a confession of submission to his authority. Here we read that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the real man who went to the cross, the historical man 
No one, very few people deny the historicity of Jesus Christ of Nazareth or the cross. And here we're told that this man is Lord. Lord is the same word, the Greek word here is the same word ascribed to Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament 6,000 times. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament is known as the Septuagint. And wherever Yahweh is written, the Greek word Lord, or the Greek word for Lord, I believe it's Kyrios, now we see that Jesus is being called Lord. Salvation requires a confession that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus has unlimited authority over your life. The lordship of Jesus means that he has complete control to do whatever he wants, whatever he deems best in my life, in your life, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, that we will do what he tells us to do. Because he's Lord. Because he's God. Because he made us. Because he's supreme. He's full authority. If you acknowledge that Jesus is Lord universally, and I believe this is possible, I, I believe that some people can get here. Jesus is Lord universally, but not Lord of my life. You deny what you claim, at least functionally. If Jesus is Lord at all, if you acknowledge Jesus as Lord of the universe, then you must embrace that he is Lord of your personal life. Lord universal means Lord personal. And if he's not Lord personally, then functionally you deny his lordship at all. Now granted, granted, your experience of submission to Jesus is going to grow. You might be thinking, well, man, I, there are still some things that I hold on to, still some things that I need to deal with. I just told you at the beginning of this, the, of this sermon that the Lord is already bringing to my mind sin issues that I am going to be dealing with in a few months. Your and, and my experience of submission to Jesus is going to grow over time. Your sensitivity to your sin is going to increase and your response time and what it takes for you to respond is going to decrease over time as you grow in faithfulness and in maturity. But the basic premise of every Christian is Jesus has full right to tell me what to do. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. He has the right to tell you what to do because he's God. Let's look at the other side of the coin here because first you have the confession with your mouth 
And second, the other side of the coin here is, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In the words of Robert Montz, outward confession stems from a profound inward conviction. This is more than mental assent, more than intellectual comprehension. It is not enough that you know the facts about Jesus' resurrection. You must believe this with all your heart, end quote. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we believe that God raised him from the dead? Why does this have to be a settled conviction for us? Two reasons. The first is because the first act of the Holy Spirit in your regeneration, when you are born again, when you are converted, is to give you faith to believe the gospel. That's the first gift. That's the first act of the Holy Spirit. He gives you faith to believe the gospel. Belief in the gospel, which is the literal life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the remission of your sin, that's the foundation of salvation. That's the building block upon which everything else in our faith is placed. It's ground zero. Everything else in our transformation into the image of the Son of God is built upon this faith, this conviction, this certainty that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death and rose from the grave on the third day. And second, Paul said that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, our faith is futile, it's, it's pointless, it's meaningless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And here's the implication, you are still in your sin. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are still in your sin. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then this is nothing. Your sin is not atoned for. A man died on a cross like thousands or tens of thousands before him and after him. But if Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to 500 eyewitnesses who were willing to be martyred themselves defending what they saw, then your sins are paid for. Because the resurrection affirms all that Jesus did and all that he said. And he's exalted to the right hand of the throne of God, Philippians 2 says, placed in a position of authority, given the name that by, every which, by, by which every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is not dead, he's alive, and he's reigning in authority. And because he is not dead, but is alive and reigns in authority, you and I will also live. Verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, I want you to notice here that Paul reverses the order from verse 9. Observe. In verse 9, it was confess and then believe. And here it is believe and then confess. This tells me that it is not sequential, but rather two sides of the same coin. They happen simultaneously. It illustrates to me that without the lordship of Christ in your life, there is no salvation. 
I have heard people say, well, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. But I have not submitted to him as my Lord. And they might say, they, they, they might reason that, well, I believe the gospel, but at some point, maybe later, I will submit to Jesus as Lord. Or, or sometimes, this is how they tell their testimony. I, I, I received Christ as my Savior when I was eight, and I submitted to him as Lord. Or they might say things like, but I really started following Jesus. I really started uh, being faithful to Jesus. I really started to understand the word and, and walk with Jesus when I was 22. And I would say, at 22, you were saved. At eight, God bless you. You made a profession of faith, and we want to encourage that, and we share the gospel with our kids. But I don't want to lie to you, and I don't want to rob God of glory. At 22, you were saved. When you began to follow Jesus as Lord, you were saved. There is no faith now, Lord later. Notice too that Paul uses the term saved and justified interchangeably. To be justified or declared not guilty is to be saved. But what are we saved from? And this is one of the reasons that the, the cross of Christ, the message of the gospel is, is folly to those who are perishing, becomes an obstacle, is a stone of stumbling. What are we saved from? We are saved from God. We are saved from God. As a sinner, you were at one time under God's just wrath. You know, because the reality is that every one of us has rebelled against him. Every one of us has snubbed our noses. Every one of us has says, well, you know that law that you've commanded that we should never do? That's not such a big deal, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. We act as if it's not a big deal to violate the law. Why? Because we drive five over the speed limit, and I'm guilty of that. I'm probably not. I want to be careful what I say. <laughs> but we're all guilty of this. And it's one thing when it's the speed limit. It's another thing when it's the law of God. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to do what you say. It represents a rebellious heart. Every one of us has rebelled against a holy, merciful, gracious creator God. We've wagged our finger at him. We've clenched our fist. When he wouldn't do for us what we told him to do for us. Imagine this. The Lord gives us the law, says don't do this, do this, and we go, no. And you don't have a right to judge me. And then we go, God, you better heal my daughter. God, you better provide for my family. God, you better give me the promotion. God, you better heal my cancer. And when he says no, we go, how dare you not respond to me? Man, we are messed up, am I not? Are we not? We treat him like a genie in the bottle and then we, we pout or shout when he doesn't give us everything that we want. 
We are rebels. Or perhaps even worse, we live in such a moralistic way that we think that we're, even, that we're good enough to stand on our own merit. Raised in the church, pretty clean kid, for the most part didn't do the wrong things, never got caught for doing the wrong things. Pretty good kids, pretty good young man, pretty good man. I probably can stand on my own merits. I'll go ahead and, you know, worship at a Christian church just in case. Read my Bible, part of my goodness. We stand on our own morals. Either way, either way. What we deserve is the just punishment of this infinitely holy God. It's just. It's right for him to judge and to punish. That is the natural end of all mankind, except for those that he saves. those whom he has graciously chosen to be vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Paul said in Romans 9.23, we will not get what we deserve. We will not get justice. Instead, we get grace. So what do we save from? We're saved from God, by God, through God, and in God. We're saved from the wrath of God, by the grace of God, through the faith that the Holy Spirit of God gives us in the Son of God. We are justified, Paul says, declared not guilty by the only judge who matters. Amen? We're made right. We're washed clean. We're born again. We're given a new identity. Did you know that your identity in Christ matters? You are given a new identity. You are no longer identified in the New Testament as sinners, but as saints. No longer objects of wrath, but objects of mercy. No longer at enmity with God, but at peace with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're no longer estranged from God and separated from God, but now we have been adopted into God's family as his beloved children. That is the identity of everyone who believes the gospel. Now you might be thinking, well, that seems too good to be true. Praise the Lord, you're listening. You're conceptualizing reasonably that what you deserve is God's just punishment and what you get as a free gift for simply believing and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord is eternal grace. You're listening and you're reasonable. It does seem too good to be true, but this is the good news of the gospel and this is the God we worship. And just to be clear, Paul once again goes back to scripture like we all ought to, we all ought to go back to scripture. When something seems too good to be true, we ought to test that by scripture. And that's exactly what Paul does. Verse 11, for the scripture says, for everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Not everyone who performs for him, but everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28, 16. To be put to shame is to face God's judgment. We're not talking about embarrassment here. We're not talking about humbling yourself. There ought to be some humiliation on your part. There ought to be some humbling of yourself. That's what it requires to be saved. Humble yourself before the Lord. We're not talking about that. We're talking about eternal judgment. To be put to shame is to face God's judgment. But those who place their faith in Christ will never be put to shame. You will stand in the day of judgment. I want you to think about this. All kinds of of supposed tickets to heaven. You know, we just watched the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. Imagine giving your life savings to purchase a Super Bowl ticket and showing up on game day and being told, it's counterfeit. Get out of here. Shame. How much more for your supposed ticket to heaven to be counterfeit? You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you will never be put to shame. You will stand in the day of judgment. You will answer that question, what should I do to allow you into my perfect heaven for eternity? You will answer that question with this, Nothing that I have done, but only what Christ has done for me. And you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter your Father's rest. Verses 12 and 13 make it clear that this is not only for those on the inner circle. It's not only for those who have lived a clean life. It's not just for those who have been raised in the church, who have their act together, but rather for everyone who believes. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2.32. So what say you? It's one thing to listen to me up here talking to the masses. But what do you say? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? If so, brother and sister, you are saved. And you will never be put to shame. But if not, why not? Why not? Is it because you want to be in control? You don't want to surrender your life? Listen, we have perfect confidence to put our life completely in the hands of Jesus. Because Jesus has never failed anyone. God raised him from the dead, seated him, at the right hand of God. He reigns and he rules and he's coming back. Today would be a great day of salvation. Amen? 
And once you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've confessed Jesus as Lord of your life, don't forget it. It doesn't start with a confession and end with an expedition. (laughs) It's always about a confession and a conviction. Now, Jesus may call you to go, and this is where you put your whole life in the palm of your hands because he's Lord. And you say wherever, whenever, however. But it's not an expedition towards your salvation. Amen. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith the Lord of the universe and Lord of my life and Lord of this church. I pray, Father, that you would help us. If there are those who have not gotten there yet, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, a day of belief, conviction, confession, submission. And Lord, for those who are saved, I pray that today would be a great reminder that it is not about our striving but about our resting in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.